0: Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Please note this podcast is intended to provide information and education and is not intended to provide you with a diagnosis or treatment advice. You should consult with a licensed or registered healthcare professional about your individual condition and circumstance. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in. Today is week five of Mental Health Awareness Month, the last week of May, but certainly not the end of acknowledging mental health here on Made Visible. I hope you've enjoyed the conversations over the last few weeks centered around mental health, hearing what people are going through, have dealt with and how they're coping. Today's guest is someone who created a physical product to cope with her own anxiety and realized that she wasn't the only person who could benefit from it. Marina Kadekel is the founder of hug a line of weighted stuffed animals for adults and kids that hug you back to ease anxiety and bring calm. I'm excited for you to learn more about Marina, hug and hear how much I love my sloth. Welcome, Marina.
1: Thank you so much, Harper. It's so great to be here with you.
0: So let's start off. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and what you do.
1: Sure. My name is Marina Kadekel, and I am the founder of Huggamols World, which launched in summer 2022 with our anchor product Huggamols, which an award-winning line of design-forward, weighted stuffed animals for both adults and kids that hug you back to ease stress and help with sleep. Before I became a founder, I had a career as a journalist and content person. I was most recently chief content officer at Thrive, which is our Huffington's well-being-focused tech startup. And before that, I was an editor at places like Glamour, Women's Health, and Cosmopolitan. And so... Really, all my work for my entire career has really centered around, at one point, service journalism, and now also helping people take actionable steps to live with less stress.
0: I love it so much. And I'm sitting here, as Marina can see, with my sloth hugamal that I'm waiting for my friend's daughter to name that I love so much and can't even believe how much I enjoy am enjoying. And we'll talk about that further. So let's take it back a little bit. Your own experience with anxiety is what inspired you to create this brand. Can you speak a little bit about your experience and what your anxiety, how your, how your anxiety showed up in your life?
1: Sure. I think I always had anxiety, even as a kid, undiagnosed. Um, my family immigrated to the States from Russia. I didn't speak English until I was five, and I was really sort of the only foreign kid in a very small close-knit school and community, you know, I uh, assimilated pretty quickly. But at the same time, you know, we'd be out in public and my parents would be screaming at each other in Russian at the grocery store. And there's nothing more embarrassing for a kid than not feeling normal or fitting in. So I think I sort of internalized that. And I went into a career in service journalism and magazines because I would read magazines as a tween and a teen, just to, you know, I felt like I couldn't really ask my mom questions about how to be because she wasn't from here. So she had a different experience and I would read them to understand, you know, how do I talk? How do I act? Like how are other people doing it? And all I wanted was to be on the other side of that masthead and help other girls and women sort of navigate life. And so that's my, my was my singular goal in life. And that's what I did. And I, I loved... What I did. I loved magazines, I loved being a chief content officer, also in a mental health space. But I did have a lot of, especially nighttime anxiety. I had a lot really hard time calming my racing mind at night. I would start spiraling, thinking of all the things I needed to do, all the things I didn't do, and I just wasn't falling asleep. And I was a health journalist, so I knew about weighted blankets before they went mass, you know, before they went viral. I knew the signs of deep touch pressure and how it could help with stress and help, you know, stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, help you relax. So I had a weighted blanket way before, you know, they went, they went mass, but it was way too hot for me. Like a lot of people way too smothering in the night. So I, I would wake up in the middle of the night, overheated, uh, mind spiraling again, negating the whole purpose of the weighted blanket. The only thing that was helping me fall asleep was my partner, Mike's arm. I was using it as a mini weighted blanket. That solution was only comfortable for one of us, not very comfortable for him. So I went went searching for for other solutions. And that was sort of, you know, the beginnings of the idea for hug I, I was looking for smaller weighted items. I found you know, some plush, some lap pads, weighted vests, this type of thing that was still really only used in the special needs community. Um, and as weighted blankets, you know, went more general, people started understanding uh, weighted pressure. So I found some weighted plush. I just I wanted to love it. I didn't. There was nothing that was beautifully designed with the features I wanted. Everything was sort of you know cheaply made, very toy. Nothing sort of an adult would would buy. And nothing I'd be proud to have out in my living room or gift to my
0: stylish friends. So I decided to create it. I love it so much. And I had the same experience, which was a few years ago, buying a weighted blanket. It was easily three, $400. And I remember it arriving in this box. It was so heavy. And I opened it up and I'm like, wow, this is stunning. The color is gorgeous. I put it on my body and could not get it off fast enough. I sold it to a friend that day. That is how quickly I was clear. I am someone that overheats. And while I wanted the comfort, I needed to be cool. And that was not going to happen with this. So I'd love for you to share, for those who are not familiar with the weighted stuffed animal concept, what are the benefits of it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So weighted pressure is known in the scientific community as deep touch pressure. And it's been studied for a long time with people on the autism spectrum or who have sensory processing issues only recently, you know, with weighted blankets, did it become sort of a general use tool for everyday anxiety, situational anxiety. So the way that it works is very similar to when you get a, big bear hug from somebody, you know, or, you know, think of that weighted vest at the dentist's office when you get an x-ray, that lead vest. A lot of people feel very comforted by it. That's because the extra pressure on the skin helps the brain stimulate the release of sort of happy neurotransmitters, the serotonin, the dopamine, the oxytocin, those that make us feel relaxed, make us feel happy, make us feel at ease. And the weight helps you feel more grounded as well. So for a lot of people with anxiety and sensory issues, you sort of feel like you're spinning out of control off the axis of the earth. This weighted pressure really helps ground you to the earth and and help you feel calm that way. I mentioned it stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. That is the system that helps tamp down a fight or flight response. and stimulate a relaxation response from the body by releasing those neurotransmitters. So weighted pressure has been shown to help ease stress and anxiety and stressful situations. It has been shown in some cases to help kids focus and you know study better. And a lot of people find it helpful for winding the mind and body down for sleep. And so I wanted to take you know, the physical relaxation benefits of a weighted blanket and marry them with the emotional connection and support of a favorite stuffed animal. And that's what I did. And I actually worked with therapists, occupational therapists, psychologists, pediatricians to perfect everything from the weight of to the weight distribution, to the colors, to the facial expressions. I'm a nerdy journalist. I wasn't going to release something into the world without doing a ton of research. So I knew weighted pressure helped me. I knew it helped a lot of people. And I wanted to to create a, a product that was beyond what I'd seen.
0: It's amazing. It's interesting you bring up the dentist's office because I'm really picturing myself in that chair and realizing I'm someone who's very claustrophobic. And especially when an x-ray machine is coming towards my mouth and there's something in my mouth, that gives me a lot of anxiety. But I'm realizing, as you said that, how the weighted vest always provided me with a level of comfort. And it's not until you said that, that I'm realizing that that's to be true. So it really is such a powerful tool. And I appreciate you in simple terms, explaining the health benefits of it. But I'm interested to know what made you decide that it wasn't just something you were going to create for yourself, but this was for other people. And it wasn't just kids, but also for adults.
1: Yeah. So I'm an adult. I don't have kids. I love kids. I wanted something for me. I also wanted something for kids. At the time I was thinking of this idea, a lot of my friends were buying their kids weighted blankets and finding that their kids would not accept this. <laughs> you know, they were too hot, smothering, you couldn't travel with them. They were expensive. They had a lot of issues. And they were like, I wish there were something else with the sort of the feel of a weighted blanket." So. I had this idea, I don't know, five years ago. I've been working on this for a long time. And we just launched last last summer, almost a year ago now. So in the background, while I was still you know, working at my full-time jobs, I was interviewing experts. I was sort of seeing, was there this hole in the market for this type of product that I thought there was? And there was. A lot of the experts, therapists I spoke with said, weighted pressure is a secret weapon. I use it with my kids. I use it in my practice. There aren't enough parents who know about this. So I, I knew that it would be a tool for kids and adults. And I worked with occupational therapists to sort of land on a weight that could work for both. So hug are are differentiated from from other weighted plush on the market for several reasons. And one is because their weight is distributed throughout their whole body, their head, their limbs, their tummy, their legs. So it feels like they're sort of wrapping their arms around you and giving you a full body hug. A lot of other products have weight and less weight, so just sort of clustered in the middle. Ours are four and a half pounds. A lot out there are about two pounds, which isn't heavy enough for a lot of people. So doing all of this research, I also wanted to test Huggemos efficacy in a place where I knew I'd learned the most information. So I tested them in children's hospitals around the country with a partnership with the Toy Foundation. They saw this product that I was working on. They believed in it and we tested it and, and children's hospitals from Austin to Maine to Florida, <clears throat> that feedback from the hospital staffers, the child life specialists who actually work with families and kids who are going through a really hard time navigating the healthcare experience, which can be really stressful, said to me that the comfort and and sensory support that hugamals were able to provide, not just to the kids who are patients, but to their families, their siblings or parents, was so incredible that these hospitals started keeping hugamals under lock and key. One of them, Miami Children's Hospital, said that they deploy a hagamol when a child needs extra intervention. They said it in passing to me, they're like, oh, we use them with our code bear kids. And I said, what's a code bear kid? And they're like, well, we can't say code red over the loudspeaker when a child needs medical intervention, security, you know, when when they're having, you know, a, an acute experience and, and they're struggling. So they deploy hagamols and they said, these things calm these kids within minutes and change their perception of what's happening in the room. And when I got that feedback, I knew this wasn't a hobby. You know, this was something I wanted to pursue full time. I knew these worked and I needed to, to pursue it.
0: Oh my God. I have chills up and down my spine. That is so spectacular. And I love that you did that approach. I mean, again, you're a researcher. You are certainly someone who is going to dig and find out that everyone loved it and how to make it the best and all of that. Prior to launching, did you receive any level of pushback or anyone questioning the efficacy of it or anything of that nature?
1: I didn't receive pushback of that sort prior to launching. You know, I think people who know me Maybe didn't foresee I would launch a stuffed animal company. (laughs) So, you know, I had a lot of people in my life, you know, asking, "Are you sure you want to do this? You know, this is not what you do. You're a journalist. You're, you know, a content person. You're, you know." And so I had I had some pushback on that front, being like, "You've never launched a company before. Are you sure you want to do this? You can do this. You feel prepared to do this?" And my answer was, "No, I don't feel prepared to do this, but I know I need to." That, that was more of the pushback.
0: I think that's really relatable. And a lot of entrepreneurs would say that of like, there's no manual for how to start a business. There's no manual how to create a product-based business. You can study and read books and learn from people, but ultimately it's really about going through the process and learning as you go. And I feel that way, you know, eight plus years into running a business or multiple businesses and seeing that like, There's nothing that someone could have told me eight years ago that would make this business run so differently. I had to have the bumps along the way and figure it out for myself. So I think that that's a really good point. Before we started recording, we were talking about your anxiety and what it's been like for you since you started this business, your schedule, your routines. Can you speak about what building this business has been like for you and managing your own well-being?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you were talking, Harper, I thought about what I hear from so many founders, which is that if I knew how hard it would be, I would never have done it. And, you know, we learn that as we go, I look back and I look back at some of these really steep obstacles that I had to overcome to launch this business at the beginning, which we could talk more about. But if I knew I'd have to go through some of that stuff, I don't know if I would, but in hindsight, it makes us stronger and it makes the business stronger. And, you know, one thing I did realize about working for myself on, on something that I truly believe in, that I see helping people is that. And when I left my full time job in last summer. I realized this pretty quickly and that's that I, I no longer got the Sunday blues, you know, all of us, you know, at one point or another have that feeling on Sunday, like, Oh, I have to go to work on Monday. It's going to be a stressful week, you know, and I don't want to, I don't get that feeling anymore. Um, and I thought that was pretty remarkable because my weeks are no less stressful running a startup. It's just a different kind of stress because I am working on, you know, something with the mission that I'm up a thousand percent behind and that I see every day helping people. One of the things that really keeps me going through, you know, the uncertainties of founder life and the roller coaster that we all hear about and we all see if we're founders is reading our customer reviews and hearing from customers. Just the stories that people tell really hit my heart. The other day, this woman was saying she and her whole family had been in the ICU for over a week visiting her dad who had like health scare that was unexpected and she bought all of her family members Huggamos, including her dad and they named them after characters from Mash, which was her dad's favorite show and so <laughs> and you know it was their inside joke and she wrote to me that Humos has become this product has become part of their family journey. you know my heart just broke open when I when I hear things like that. you know a mom reached out to me and said her daughter had panic attacks every time she flew on an airplane until she brought her hug And now she hugs it all the flight long and she doesn't have the panic attacks anymore. These kinds of stories, it's hard not to keep going when you hear them.
0: Yeah, and it's such a reminder and proof of what you're doing is truly making an impact on people's lives. People like to rename
1: them. Some people keep the names. Each one has a gender-neutral name. So there's Sam the Sloth, Emery the Elephant, Charlie the Puppy. And we just introduced pre-orders for our newest hug character, Frankie the Cat. Cat people were very vocal. Why don't you have a cat? You need a cat, and so that was our. We knew that was going to be the first new Huggable that we had, and I had so much fun designing designing Frankie with my product designer and choosing the colors and you know all all of the facial expressions are neutral intentionally because uh, you know you see a lot of stuffed animals are smiling. When you're not feeling well, you don't want something stupidly smiling at you. So that was an intentional decision with input from psychologists. It's more emotionally supportive if you can imagine it feeling any feeling or feeling any feeling alongside of you. A lot of people tell us, like, why are these so like they I just want to stare into its face. <laughs> and one one reviewer wrote at the end of the day. I come home and I stare into his little face and he tells me everything's going to be okay. And that just, I loved hearing that because it just validated that that little choice, you know, to make them not smiling because they're just empathetic no matter what you're feeling.
0: They'll feel it along with you. Yeah, that's a really interesting point as I stare at Sam the Sloth, whose name will be changed soon. I think about like going to friends' houses with kids that have like tons of dolls and stuffed animals in their bed And I was at my friend's house in DC a few weeks ago and his son was like showing me and giving me a tour of all the stuffed animals. And some of their faces were so creepy. And I'm thinking this kid sleeps with these and then all of a sudden wakes up in the middle of the night and looks at that. So I I think there's really something to be said about like the neutralness, not this massive smiling face or it's not sappy looking, but there's really something comforting about it. I, I wanna go back to your mental health a little bit more and your anxiety. And talk about what are some of the things that have been beneficial for you in managing your own anxiety, your own stress as a new founder, aside from obviously having these new buddies.
1: Absolutely. I've really had to lean on a lot of my learnings and a lot of the work that I did in my previous life, which was as a health and wellness journalist and a Thrive. You know, I led the content team. I co-authored Thrive's first book called Your Time to Thrive, and we really talked about micro steps—we called them—which are just tiny, science-backed steps you could take to improve your mental health and physical health. And it sort of echoes, you know, Atomic Habits or um, Tiny Habits. You know, those books from from James James Clear and BJ Fogg, uh, really just behavior change science. And I've been doing a few of the things actually for a long time, and I've continued to do them. And some things I'm doing are new. So one thing that has really changed my mental health ahead of a day, like in the morning, is to not check my phone for one minute after I wake up. And it sounds tiny, but like many other people, what I was doing was just rolling over on bed, looking at my phone before I'd even gotten out of bed, had a glass of water or anything. And what you do when you do that is you start your day thinking about, what other people want when you look at your email or what motivates other people or inspires other people when you look at your socials or the scary news headlines of the day. If you look at the news and you're doing everything but focusing on what you need and want from your day. And so I say a minute, it can be longer. People like to sometimes exercise or take a shower and sometimes before looking at their phone, but even just that one minute helps. And in that minute, I'll do something. We call it habit stacking, doing something else good. So I'll just drink a glass of water or I'll do some stretches or I'll set an intention for the day. And it's a tiny thing, it's one minute, but it really it really helped me not see this anxiety spike that I was seeing every morning. So that's one thing. Another thing is, I mean, I'm big on sleep, Harper. <laughs> I'm huge on sleep. I think sleep is incredibly underrated. You know, the whole founder trope of you'll sleep when you're dead and there's no time to sleep. I'll cancel plans sometimes in favor of sleep. And I will unabashedly reject the science and sleep in on the weekends because it's what I need. I feel like it's what my body needs. There's no no shame in that for me. So there's no no shame around sleep. Yeah. And at night to wind down, I actually use my own thing. I use a huggable every night, like that pressure, you're know, watching TV or reading or whatever. It just helps you sort of wind down from, from all the stress of the day. Yeah.
0: I could not agree more on the sleep front. And you acknowledged when we were supposed to record that you had had a bad night's sleep. And nothing in me was like, oh, she's complaining about sleeping, about not getting enough sleep. I was like, let's reschedule. I need some space as well. And I'm such a big believer in that. I do not function well. My friends give me a lot of shit for it of like, oh, what are you doing up at nine? Isn't it early for you? And it's like, what's, what's the problem? Why can I not sleep in? What, why does this affect you so much? And I don't know if it's like a jealousy thing, especially because some of them have kids and that's not really an option for them, but I value sleep so, so much and don't see that changing. But I really have to say, I love that you share this concept of one minute because I think people think that they need to change their behavior so drastically and they forget the need to start somewhere, which is a huge, huge motto of mine. Just start, start somewhere. One minute can make such an impact. And when you phrase it the way that you did of you're basically taking on other people's stuff by waking up and looking, I am starting that tomorrow because I feel sick just hearing you say it like that. (laughs)
1: I mean it's true. I was having this anxiety spike and I think you're so right. Sleep is is one of the last things we feel okay shaming people about, you know? If you can get it, get it, you know? A lot of people can't get their sleep that like you said, the sleep that they want all the time, but when you can get it, no shame in that. Absolutely no shame. And I love what you said too about, you know, I did have a really rough night's sleep and I knew I wouldn't have shown up as my best self for you, for me, you know, for everybody listening. So I don't See any shame in in that either? Like we felt close enough to each other that we could share, you know, what we were each going through, and and pick a time that really worked for us. And so I really appreciated that, and I appreciated you for that, absolutely. And I also have a habit of blocking off my mornings before, let's say, eleven thirty or noon, for deep work or anything else. Like those, you know, I know like if I schedule a meeting at like eight in the morning, it's going to be a disaster. I'm not a morning person, you know, like, and th- that's also something that people feel okay shaming people about. I'm a night person. I'll be up till two in the morning working and I'll get, you know, a creative streak then. And I might sleep until nine or eight 30, you know, or on the weekends later. And I don't see any problem with that. Any shame with that? You know, I know the sleep experts say go to sleep, wake up at the same time every day, but that is just a general blanket advice and it might not work in all circumstances for all people.
0: Yeah. I also think the normalizing of being able to communicate this stuff would be really, really valuable to everyone. You know, in hosting this podcast and in facilitating writing workshops for people with invisible illnesses, I've learned to make really, really subtle accommodations that can benefit people in such a major way of people not not wanting to have their Zoom camera on or turning on closed captions, whatever it may be, how small of an impact, how, how small of an action that is for me to take to make such a huge impact on someone else's life. And I think that there is so much judgment to your point of like hustle culture where you need to be on and available at all hours and that's not healthy for anybody. I mean, I'm probably I'm sure you can speak to that from the work that you did previously of just people being constantly attached to their phone and computer and realizing how much that doesn't benefit them. And it's funny because as I say that I'm like holding on to my hug-a-mole even tighter, going <laughs> like, oh I do not miss those <laughs> times at all. I hated reporting to people and having to be places At certain times. And you know, the other thing I'll say to your point about like working late hours and not waking up early and having the morning to yourself. One of the best things for me about choosing to live in Tel Aviv and coming here for several winters prior was the time difference and running a business that was seven hours ahead of New York and East Coast time and having an entire day to myself where I wake up and don't feel like I have to respond to emails immediately, to your point, and feel the pressure of like, I got to get on this right now. I got to jump out of bed. I got to deal with this. I can have a slow morning. I can do the things that need to be done personally, professionally, for my health, et cetera. And every time I come back to New York, I feel such a sense of pressure that I need to be on, that I need to respond immediately. It's self-induced. But it's so much about being in New York and just the vibe of New York, which I love and hate at the same time, and also not really missing the time difference.
1: Yeah, I, I've taught myself to just never feel FOMO. No, I, I don't know. I used to be like you, like, you know, I would get an email from a coworker or my boss. And I, you know, definitely feel the need to respond right away. But my team, you know, I work with a team of amazing contractors on this company. I couldn't do it myself. If I tried, they know that like, I may email them after six and they do not have to respond, you know, until the next day. Like I just lay that out. You know, I try to schedule emails, you know, when I can for, you know, the workday. And like, you know, running a found startup, it's not a nine to five, it's more than that. But you have to carve out the things that help you flourish. And for me, that's not waking up at five in the morning, like all these like startup bros say, and like, you know, biohacking and all that garbage. Like I just, that doesn't work for me. It might work for somebody. And I just don't feel any guilt about it. I really don't. I, you know, I've learned not to, and and I did for a very long time. And I just think the sooner you can sort of eschew that guilt that we put on ourselves, like nobody cares. Think about all the people who haven't responded to you right away. And you didn't, you didn't care. You know, you just, Oh, great. They responded to me the next day. Like, let me get this conversation going. It's there's, you know, they're not thinking about that as much as you are probably. So relieve yourself of that guilt and a lot of the stress will fall away.
0: Yeah. And I think it it really relates to invisible illness of like not knowing what people are going through on the other side of an email. You have no idea what's going on. But I guess the question I have for you is if you're sending emails past five, six o'clock and you're not scheduling them, do you not think that that's an invitation for people to be emailing you at all hours and expecting things of you at all hours?
1: I think it was different when I was in a full-time job. I felt really tethered. I felt really tethered to, to my work and my boss. And you know, I just I had a different mindset and it wasn't necessarily a healthy one. Now, if people send me emails, I just don't get back to them until, you know, until it's convenient for me. (laughs) And, And I expect people to do the same. And I admit, you know, I was a manager. I managed teams and I got caught up in sort of that, you know, the rat race. And when people didn't respond to me right away, I understood. I've always been empathetic. But did I wish things could move faster and faster and faster. Yes. I think leaving sort of the full-time hustle and working for myself expanded my boundaries and made me understand not, you know, everyone's working on their own thing. Everyone's got their own issues. Like you said, you don't know what's going on with somebody. And I've seen that enough in person firsthand that I really don't care. If somebody doesn't get back to me right away, that's fine. They're busy. And I expect the same.
0: What other lessons have you learned from your past jobs that you've been able to take into building this business?
1: I have always been told by people on my teams when I had full-time jobs that I was a very collaborative leader. And that's the way I have liked my leaders to be. And communicating what you need and want from people who you're working with is super important. Nobody is a mind reader. And if you need to hop on a Zoom with them and do a work session, that is very useful time because they'll see how you think, you know, you approach it like you're in it together. It's not you barking orders at somebody. So the more collaborative you could be as a leader, as a founder, I think the better. You know, the other lesson I've learned, and I've always been a proponent of community. When I was an editor at magazines, I would create these reader nights where I would have, you know, invite 10 readers over for pizza and champagne and ask them what they liked best about you know what we were doing, what they liked least, tell us about our lives. And those nights were a gold mine for story ideas, but also were a mirror back at us of like what what are what's resonating with people, what's not. And you get to see your reader. You're not talking at them, you're you're in a room with them. And I've sort of Taken that into every job I've had, and as a founder, that kind of community mindset has made me extremely customer obsessed. And so, these founders of small companies who think they're you know too busy to, to deal with customers—that's uh, a mistake because your customer is the one that's going to tell you what you're doing right, what you're going, what you're doing wrong. They're going to be your biggest evangelist, or they'll be your biggest detractor. So, I would write every customer who writes a review for Huggelmose personally and thank them. There will probably come a day where I I don't have the bandwidth to do that, but I will try for as long as I can because there's nothing more important, I think, for a founder than your customers and speaking one-on-one with them.
0: Yeah, that personal touch also goes a really long way. And people really appreciate being connected to you and feeling like there's someone on the other side that actually cares. And you're also able to get the kind of data that you're getting of how valuable it's been for people and for their families. So knowing that you came from the industry that you did and obviously had lots of contacts in publishing I'm curious to know how you approached the marketing and getting the product out into the world. I if I recall correctly, you and I started talking in in knowing each other previously, you and I started talking because I was seeing your posts everywhere. I was seeing press everywhere and I was like, what is the deal with this thing? I need to know more and I need to get my hands on one of these guys. So yeah, tell me about the like marketing and, and strategy for getting it out into the world.
1: So I've never started a company. I've never launched a product. This is all very new to me. And there's a lot more about it that I don't know than I know how to do. But I'm lucky to have really great people who I work with on a lot of that stuff, learning as quickly as I can. The press piece is something I hoped I would be able to bring, you know, my experience, some of my connections. I knew without getting the word out about huggamoles in the press, it would be nothing. You know, there there are other weighted stuffed animals. There are so many brands out there. Without sort of becoming a household name and getting out there, I had nothing. I spent the first five months after launching the company, myself full-time doing PR and marketing. And I hired people to do the other stuff, but I knew if I didn't do that, I really wouldn't have anything to, to continue with. So I had a strategy that I have a spreadsheet of about 200 press contacts, newsletter editors, influencer type people that are kind of in my orbit, right? And so who I know or who maybe somebody I know knows. And then the third layer is I don't know, but they report on something or they work at a publication that is very relevant to 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 what I'm doing. I just started working my way through it. My strategy was to, and I recommend this to everyone, start with people you know. What you'll find is that a lot of people who you think will come through for you will not, but others who you maybe tangentially know, your weak ties, they might Really step up and help you. So I started with people in the press that I knew that I had worked with who I thought would be really relevant. Then I expanded to, you know, people that. I knew of, and then I expanded to people I didn't know, but who I really wanted them to cover. And so, yeah, I spent full-time five months doing my own PR. I didn't hire a company. And what happened was I started hearing from a lot of other founders and they were saying to me, how are you getting all of this press? We've hired PR companies for 6,000, 10,000, $12,000 a month and nothing. Maybe we got a couple little hits, but you know, we were really unhappy with the experience and blah, blah, blah. And there's great PR companies out there too. I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't, but The story that I hear from a lot of founders of new brands is that they're not seeing this traction and how am I doing it? I want to help everybody and I obviously can't while running this company. So I've actually started consulting on the side for startup founders and of mission driven companies, especially. And I don't, I'm not a PR company, so I will not pitch for you, but I will tell you how to find editors and writers to pitch, what to say in your pitch, what not to say in your pitch, how to follow up and sort of how how to structure your work around this so you don't have to hire somebody at least not initially. And that's been something really cool that I can do on the side. And I see these founders who have, you know, really didn't have any experience in it, understand like, "Oh, this is how you do it." Oh, like I, you know, I feel like I can at least start this. And a lot of startup founders hire PR companies. It feels very cold when a PR company pitches you sometimes. I was an editor, so I was on the other side of all these PR pitches, deleting, deleting, deleting for the same few reasons which I help founders avoid. But I tell founders you started this company for a reason. Tell your story, be a person, be a human, don't be a bot. And editors actually respond to that. And at the same time, bring them something of value, bring them something cool to cover, understand who they are, what they do. Don't blanket, you know, spam people. So I've started doing that and that's been really cool. But yeah, the press starts spiraling. Press begets press. Once outlets see that other outlets have covered and validated you, they're more likely to do it. So that is also something very true. I actually was wondering. I launched in the toy industry. Parents and grandparents of kids who suffer from anxiety—that was my early press, toy guides. You know, we won Good Housekeeping's Best Toy Awards, Parents' Best Toy Awards. And then I wondered if adults would find the product. You know, I created for myself, and they are. And now the press is starting to be graduation gifts, Mother's Day guides, gifts for friends that they wouldn't expect. And so that's been something really cool that sort of started on its own. I haven't necessarily been pitching. Hugamoles for adults necessarily, but the press has sort of understood the, the wide appeal.
0: That's so amazing. I love hearing that. And it feels like there's so many moments in life that you'll be able to create content around and be able to share how it could be valuable to people in different moments. I now have this. What is your goal in someone having one on their own? I assume gifting. But how do you make that brand extension for you to constantly have people coming back and have repeat customers?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. We actually have a lot of repeat customers. I didn't know if we would at the start. I hoped we would, but I, I wasn't sure. And what's happening is, you know, a lot of people will get it for a child who has anxiety or, or you know, is stressed, has a stressful situation coming up. And that child's, maybe teenage sibling sees it and they're like, I want one. So they get it for them. And then a lot of times parents steal it for themselves. And then they have to get another one because they actually want one. And then they'll gift it to family, friends, to cousins, you know, to school friends. And that's, that's the trend that we see happening. Sometimes an adult will get it and they'll be like, everyone needs to know about this right now. And, you know, those customers are our biggest evangelists and they, they get it for their friends. We see this is really moving a sort of a subcategory of customers is Alzheimer's and dementia patients. They can't have a pet. And, you know, sometimes a stuffed animal will just get lost, but the weight of a hog mole is very soothing and grounding to them. And it feels almost like a, a live thing. So we hear that a lot. Like I've gotten this for my mother, or my father, who has Alzheimer's, who has dementia, and it's been a game changer. You know, we've also had a lot of women, People who've experienced pregnancy loss or child loss who want to hold something that feels child-like—it it really, the breadth of the customer base has really surprised me. I figured, great parents, every kid suffers from anxiety sometimes. This is going to be great. Grandparents actually found us and sold us out last holiday, <laughs> and. We'll be going on QVC in the fall, which is another amazing audience of people, which is very exciting. Yeah, it's just been amazing. And I think some of the press we've gotten, we've won Time Magazine's Best Inventions. We've won, you know, Glamour's Best Women-Owned Brands and, and things like this. Different little pockets of people are discovering it through that, and also through word of mouth.
0: It's so powerful. And I just want to acknowledge all that you shared on the PR front. I'm so not surprised that you had the outcome that you did. And I'm not surprised that you didn't hire an agency because you knew the power of your own contacts and your own experience to be able to make that happen.
1: And the power of the product is really what did it. For sure. The power of
0: the product. You could have all the
1: contacts in the world. If you have a bad product, nobody will feature you.
0: I also think that it's. I, I think it's really amazing that you're paying it forward and helping other founders in making sure that they have the tools to be able to pitch themselves. So, what's next for the company? New products, new animals. What's the what's next?
1: New animals first. So we just introduced our first new Huggamol's family member, Frankie the cat. And coming after that, we're working on a couple adorable are coming next. And I'm also prototyping different types of products. A lot of people have wanted something. Huggimals are four and a half pounds. A lot of people, they say to me, I want something to crush me. Like they really want something super heavy. (laughs) So for their, you know, it's called proprioceptic input, that weighted pressure that feels really good on the body for a lot of people. And I should say some people do not, are not sensory seekers they do not like weight. But for for those who do, sometimes they want something heavier. So we are prototyping different types of calming products that are not stuffed animals. And I'm really excited about that. We do have a big customer base that's adults. I'd say now 50% or more of our product reviews, and we have thousands of five-star reviews, are from adults who use animals for themselves. So that's been really cool to see, you know, it expanding. And I love hearing from parents and I also love hearing from adults. So yeah, we are prototyping different types of products. We are doing a, a, a big partnership with QVC. We're working on a couple other partnerships and we are expanding globally. We're now in Canada. We're on Amazon here, but also in Amazon Canada, different stores in Canada. And, you know, we just got a, a big order from a chain of 160 plus stores in Sweden. And in, in Europe... They, they're ahead of the U.S. in mental health. They they get it. We're expanding internationally, and that's, that's very cool for me,
0: too. I love that. Congrats. I'm so excited for you on this. I'm sitting here holding my sloth, changing positions as if it's a baby that's, like, fussy.
1: <laughs> so what you're doing right now, that took us viral on TikTok. We have 16 million views on TikTok from videos of, I just take my phone. I didn't expect this. I don't know anything about TikTok. I just took my phone and started recording people at when I went to trade shows holding a hug for the first time. And they do not expect it to be as heavy as it is. And they instantly do what you are doing and put it on their shoulder like a baby. And their reactions are so big and funny that it took a spiral on TikTok. I
0: call it the first hug feeling. You don't
1: expect it to feel like that.
0: Oh, my God. I love it so much as I give it a tight squeeze. So given that this podcast is all about invisible illness and you've had experience with anxiety. What do you want people to know about invisible illness?
1: I think it's. I think invisible illness is much more prevalent than we think it is, and I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of adults getting diagnosed with ADHD and anxiety as adults, and so much of that has gone undiagnosed. And I also think, similar to what you were saying before, Harper. You just don't know what somebody is going through. I live in New York; it's bustling. There's people everywhere. It's tempting to to grumble, like, "Oh, this person cut me off on the street," or "This person is talking very loudly." Like, why, you know? But I always try to stop myself and think, "What could they be going through? Like, they might be suffering. They're not showing it, and I don't know about it." And everyone has a story. We don't see people's stories, especially the parts that might be. A struggle for them. So I just always lean back on that and think, I I just don't know. I just don't know what they're going through.
0: I appreciate that so much. And obviously, it's something I agree with so much. Thank you so much for creating this incredible product that I really didn't think I would love as much as I do. I'll be honest with you. And I'm obsessed. And all my friends, when they come to my house, are like grabbing it. I'm wondering who's going to fight for it tomorrow night when I have some friends over. Where can people find more about Hugamols, purchase them and connect with you? Yeah, you can purchase Hugamols on
1: our website hugamolsworld.com. It's H U G I M A L S like hug and animal. hugamolsworld.com. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at hugamols, on Facebook at World. Yeah, we're we're on socials and we're, we're also on Amazon, if that's easier for you. Our newest character, Frankie, is on huggamolesworld.com, not, not yet on Amazon. So we've got pre-orders there. But yeah, I love to hear from people. I love to hear what they're thinking about the product, if they've gotten it, how, how it is. And I really appreciate you sharing your experience with it and, and seeing how your friends react to it, too.
0: I need to write a review. That's next on my to-do list. Thank you, Marina. Harper. Thank you so much. This was, this was amazing. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into made visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple podcasts. Your support means the world to us. Visit madevisiblestories.com to check out our writing workshops, corporate offerings, and more information that can help you in navigating life with an invisible illness follow made visible stories on Instagram. See you next week.